Good morning, everybody. Ek heet jylle baie welkom. It's lovely to be here on a sort of beautiful late summer morning. And I have the extreme pleasure of talking about a book that I had the fortune to edit, that I was able to immerse myself in and enjoy. And I do have the best job in the world. And we're going to be talking about it, but I just want to get an idea before we get going. How many of you have actually read the book? Oh, quite a few of you. Because I also wanted to say those, but, but, but I know that some of you haven't. So we're going to have to walk a fine balance. There are no spoilers. And that we don't turn this into one of these discussions where there's a stark divide between those who have read the book and who are all in on all of its secrets and those who are not. I also wanted to say that if anybody wants to contribute anything to the discussion, I hope you've got pen and paper. Write down your question or your thought or your idea or something that you want Jackie here to address and just pass it forward to the front like passing notes at school and the Amuzi team will get it to me and then I can just insert it into the conversation. If, of course, I think your question is interesting enough. <laughs> anyway, but um, my history with the book is that, as I said, I got to edit this, but I've actually been following Jackie's career for a long time at that point. And interestingly enough, 10 years ago, she edited an anthology that I put together and I said to her, you know, one day, she was, her, her surname is Laange, literally the angel, and she was angelic. And I said to her, one day, I'm going to return the favor. And I did, 10 years later. Um, it's a debut novel, and some of you may then sort of bring certain assumptions that, you know, a debut novel is... Um, a little bit edgy, a little bit raw, um, the author still working out their technique, finding their voice, establishing themselves. Not this. This was one of the most polished books. This was one of the most polished manuscripts I ever had the pleasure to work on. And it had a lot to do with the fact that Jackie had been writing it for, what was it, five years? So it's this beautifully balanced and tightly woven tapestry that sort of on the macro level, it was extremely well planned and organized, but on the micro level, right down to the line level, the choice of words, it was beautifully done. So those of you who haven't read it yet, you're in for a major treat and keep an eye on this in terms of literary prizes and so on, so you can kind of be the first one to say, well, I saw her at Stellenbosch at Wordefius, you know. She signed my copy of the book. So just make sure that you have copies that she can sign so that you can brag, have bragging rights later. But I don't want this to turn into the sort of discussion, as I said, also where she and I, who obviously know the book intimately, discuss all of its private business. So I'm going to ask, start by asking Jackie to tell us a little, I mean, you heard that tantalizing snippet of biography. I'm going to ask Jackie to start by telling us a little bit about what a, what a waif of the world she is, what a wandering leaf, is that the right word? No, a leaf blown about across the continents, because it's actually relevant to the book, how much she's traveled and the interesting places she's traveled. So over to you. Thank you, Helen. I like that waif of the world very much. Um, thank you for that beautiful introduction, and also thank all of you for coming out so early on a Thursday morning uh, to be here. Um, it's lovely to see so many of you. Um, 
Yeah, so my, my wafedom, um, my upbringing was, I suppose, it was quite um, unusual in the sense that I, I did grow up over five continents. That's before the age of, sort of 17. Um, my father was a journalist and um, my stepfather was a diplomat. So between the two, uh, they both traveled extensively and my parents split up when I was six. So from the age of 10, I was kind of flying on my own uh, to Hong Kong to go visit my mother and, you know, with one of those I used to poo-poo, they always wanted to put one of those little things around me, those signs that said unaccompanied child, and I was like, I know exactly what I'm doing, just, it's fine, you know, um, a bit precocious. But, um, but yeah, so, so I lived in a lot of different places. I grew up in, in the United States, I'm in New York and New Jersey for the first 10 years of my life, so considered myself, you know, American in my, in my mind, and I think, um, uh, I think Maddie, my, my main character, is, is, is quite like me in that sense, so I made her American, but she, she also... Uh, spends time basically in the United States, in South Africa, and Brazil. She has connections to South Africa, so she was very much based on the three three main places that I that I, that I spent formative years of my of my childhood. Yeah. Well, that actually takes us to Brazil, and there's an interesting line in the novel where someone does that whole Africa as a country thing about Brazil. You know, sort of. Well, you'll, I think it's, it's, it's Maddie's boss who says to her something like, well, you'll be in Brazil anyway, so why don't you go and see X? And Maddie says, because that's like saying to somebody in London, why don't you pop into Moscow? And um, I want you to talk, because we do tend to have that attitude to Brazil, that it's, you know, it's, it's like the time I was in America late last year and somebody said to me, you're South African, did you know Wangari Matai? <laughs> And then she looked at my face and she said, did I just say something very ignorant? But because of that, I want you to talk a little bit about Brazil because this is not your, much of the action is set in Brazil, but it is not the Rio of the beaches and the girl from Copacabana. So I want you to talk a little bit about the parts of Brazil that you explore in this novel and um, what makes them different and special. Um. Thanks. Yeah, Brazil is, a, is, a, is an enormous country um, and a very, very diverse country. Uh, when I lived there, I lived in Brasilia, which is right in slap bang in the middle of the country. It's a sort of artificially created um, capital. Um, they, you know, it was there was nothing there before they built it, and they drew an X through the country and said, "We're going to build it here because they wanted to, to bring, you know, development and, and commerce in from Rio de Janeiro and, and São Paulo, where, where most of it." was at the time. Um, so it was a kind of a strange and interesting city, but that's, that's a whole other uh, amazing architecture. Um, so I spent a lot of my childhood, I was there for my teenage years, I, I did all my high school in Brazil, so it was a great time, it was a great time to be, it was a great place to be in that time of my life. Um, and so I spent quite a lot of time going to Rio and back and forth, we'd have sports tournaments and that sort of thing. But I never went to the south, uh, sorry, to the north uh, east of Brazil, to Salvador until much later, and it was in fact, I went back for a high school reunion in 2005, and um, I went to Salvador then, and it was the first time that I'd experienced this incredibly African aspect of Brazil. Um, Brazil is very culturally diverse, um, but I don't think a lot of people know that um, the statistic is between four and ten times as many people were taken as slaves to Brazil as to the United States. Massive amount of people. Um, obviously, you know, there are people spread throughout uh, the whole of Brazil, but the northeast is is very, very African, and Salvador in particular has got a very, very strong African flavor and history and, and pride. And that, that, of course, is where Candomblé, uh, which is a, a spiritual tradition, um, Afro-Brazilian spiritual tradition, has sort of grown and thrived and, and, and taken root. Oh God, we're going to have so many of these botanical. Mm -hmm. 
metaphors, but it's uh, so it's it's very very rich um, uh, and and unique place. And I I was tempted to go there or, or sort of nudged in that direction because I met a, a Brazilian. I was working on a film set in Mozambique a couple of years before that, and one of the actors was Brazilian and he practiced candomblé. And I watched this devotion and this 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 beautiful sensitivity that he had towards us, an animistic, wonderful. He would every morning he had these rituals that he would do and. And I just became fascinated uh, by it, and we had a lot of conversations, and, and it was really because of Rodrigo that, that I went to, to Salvador to go and see for myself. And once I got there, I just thought, this, this has to be written about. It's just so, it's so unique. And also, I wanted, uh, you know, for me, coming from South Africa, and um, I just thought, people here don't really know about this, this, this Africanness of Brazil. They think about, as you say, they think about, you know, the girl from Ipanema, and the bossa nova, and it's all about carnaval, and all of this, but there is so much more you know, to Brazil, that's, that's, that's really fascinating. And I wanted to bring that to the world and I wanted to explore that connection between Africa um, and, and, uh, and Brazil. I found the, I mean, this, you know, they say that with, you know, um, books, you can travel without ever experiencing jet lag or the chicken or beef question. And one of the loveliest things about this book is the absolute saturation in the different places. Um, and it, and uh, I mean, I want to say all sorts of things about that, that she writes about the Cape and the mountains of the Cape and Feinbos so beautifully. She writes about a place I'd never even, I, I thought Brazil, you know, the music, you know, I had the usual very crude stereotypes in my head. And, um, but she also writes, she has this purgatory, this waiting place um, of airport lounges because one of the things that happens to Maddie is that she's flying all around the world when the Icelandic volcano, whose name cannot ever be pronounced, blows up. And uh, so she, you, you have that waiting space, which is absolutely brilliantly described. It's where this wandering, you know, the waif of the world, Maddie, the, the, the characteristic she shares with the author, stops and gets time to think. And... Um, and then, there, then there's, there's, there's a New England farm that comes into the picture. So this book really is a magic carpet and it'll take you to a lot of places. But one of the things I found so special, which ties in with what you said, was that when I was reading this book, I thought so much of the map of the world. And you can see that South America and Africa were once connected. Um, you know, there's, there's that bulge. And I suddenly, I felt that your book closed that gap. I hadn't thought about the very profound and rich and tragic connection between Northeast Brazil and West Africa. I hadn't thought about the issue of slavery and how it, you know, how it was affected in, um, how it affected Latin America because so much of the narrative around slavery is about the middle passage to North America. And as you say, how is it 10 times as many slaves went to Latin America? So I actually want, there are two things I want you to talk about. I want you to talk about, because that's something else that comes into this. There are slave narratives in this book that are fascinating and profoundly different to the ones that we're accustomed to reading. So I want you to talk a little bit about that, but I want you to talk more about the, um, the religion and the spirituality as well. Maybe you can tie them together as cleverly as you do in the book. Mm -hmm. 
So, over to you. Oh, that's, that's a lot of questions. All in yes, the, sorry. In the, <laughs> my, my idea is now I'm going to sit back for 20 minutes and let you talk. <laughs> can, I, can I just want to start with the, with the transit space first before we go? Because it was uh, interesting, um, because the thing for me about Maddie was, um, and I wanted her to be stuck in this limbo space, because she's a person who, um, who is running from, from her own demons. You know, she has, a, she has a big secret in her past. I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, but, but like many people, she keeps on the run because she just doesn't want uh, things to catch up with her. She doesn't want her own mind to, to catch up with her. So, um, so I used this device um, of, of this limbo space as a place where she had to actually stop and do some kind of reckoning and, um, and think about, uh, you know, she, she just, she was forced to stop running. Um, and that's when sort of things start to, to, to kind of uh, uh, unravel a little bit. And once she gets to Brazil, um, and she's a reluctant traveler, she doesn't want to go uh, to, on this mission to, to save the seeds. She's a botanist and, and she really doesn't want to go because her father lives in Brazil and she's estranged from him. So um, she, but she goes like all good quests. She's a reluctant uh, traveler, but she eventually gets pulled in. And um, and when she gets there, you know, everything really starts unraveling because her past does catch up with her and she has to face some very hard truths. And it sort of starts in that limbo space a little bit where, and it just gave me a, a, a way for her to sort of tell her, her backstory a little bit. But um, the past that catches up with her is not, um, it's not an African-Brazilian past. That's very, very new to her. her. Her family, her family are North American and South African. And so she, when she gets to Northeast Brazil, uh, to Salvador, it is, it is familiar in terms of the, the fact that she speaks the language. Um, and I mean, she was born in Brazil. She has family there. But it is completely different and new to her. Um, so, she, so she is out of her depth and she's out of her comfort zone. But what she's looking for more than anything else is is, is actually a home and a, and a place to be. So it's not the exoticness of, of it that, that actually grabs her in. It's the, it's the comfort and the familiarity and the, the welcoming uh, motherly aspect of, of Candomblé. And Candomblé is a very, uh, it's a matriarchal, uh, religion uh, and the it's instead of priest you know you have my de santos the mother of the saints and they preside over the various tejeros which is like a, a church or sacred worship space so so she she basically needs to infiltrate this tejero um, because it is thought that if the seed that she's looking for exists then it will exist there um, and it would have been this plant would have been taken over uh, with people taken as slaves from Africa from West Africa where it's extinct um, and might still be uh, might still be existing in Brazil in the Tejeros because it would have been cultivated there for, for spiritual and, and religious purposes. So that's kind of why she goes into then. She's very much on a scientific quest. She's not, uh, she's not looking, she's not, she's not a particular, in fact, she's an atheist. She's not a religious person. Um, she considers herself a scientist um, and, and not very credulous. But, but of course, um, I think that's the other strand of this is that she's not as... Um, uh, she is not what she thinks she is, you know, she's, 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 uh, and she's also, and this becomes apparent to the reader, kind of as it becomes apparent to herself, that she's not as, as, as stoic, as strong, as independent um, as she thinks she is. Um, as I said, things sort of start unraveling. And it was largely through her, um, you know, her, her experience in the Tejero and the warmth and welcoming um, nature of the people there um, and, and this, this incredibly rich, um, uh, a religion that really has a, there's a lot of stories in it and, and story I think always uh, it's like the fairy tales that we listen to as a child stories draw us in and stories are what draw her in and, and, and kind of uh, yeah she, she lets down her guard a little bit and of course she falls in love as well so I haven't really spoken enough about the candomblé I don't think you're doing great, <laughs> carry on <laughs> so many questions at once <laughs> 
Well, well, actually, um, you know, sort of, I was, I, I was interested in the link between Candomblé and slavery. The, okay. the kind of. Okay. So yeah. maybe. So, so, so Candomblé, yeah. So Candomblé is based very much on the on the Yoruba, you know, and other West African religions. Um, and basically, when when people were taken over as slaves, they they brought their religions with them, obviously, and their practices as well as as their seeds and other things. And um, but what happened when when they arrived in Brazil is that they had to start practicing in secret uh, because obviously the the slave masters were very were very threatened, you know, by by this religion. And what happened also over time is that Candomblé and Catholicism, because this is a, a Portuguese was a Portuguese colony at the time, very very Catholic, and Brazil still is a very Catholic country, and um, and there there is this very, very interesting kind of layering of, of Candomblé uh, or of the Yoruba saints and the Catholic saints, and there's a sort of syncretization that's happened, uh, which, is, which is very, very fascinating, and, and it's still very strong and exists today. There are purists who say, well, they want to, you know, want to keep the sort of the African deities separate from, from, you know, from the Catholic ones, but that in practice and on the streets, that doesn't happen, and everything is kind of melded in together, and the ceremonies, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite fascinating and very, very colorful and very vibrant and very alive, you know, Know, that, that it, it's, it's a very, it's a very living yeah. uh, practice. So, uh, so yes. Yeah, so, so, a little bit about the the. So, they are saints. It's sort of an animist uh, tradition, um, and so you have saints of uh, the trees. You have saints of of the, the mother of waters, sweet waters, sea waters. Uh, you've got the god of uh, of leaves. You've got gods of war and of iron, and and they all they all have characters. They really are. I think I kind of describe them almost as characters, or as Maddie sees them as characters in a soap opera. You know, and they all have their stories and their tales. I mean, that for me was fascinating to dive into that world. Um, and, and they really are living, breathing presences in the minds of people and, and uh, you know, in, in the streets of Salvador. So, so yeah, Maddie, Maddie finds herself, and particularly, she finds herself attracted to Yamanja, who is the sort of uber-mother goddess. Uh, she's the goddess of the sea. Um, and kind of the mother of all the saints, um, and that, and she is the one who who is kind of chosen for Maddie. You know, everybody everybody uh, who practices Kundalini has a saint. They have their token saints, maybe one or two or three. It's a little bit like if, you know, if you're in astrology, you know, if you're a Sagittarian, Catholic. it is very Catholic. Um, so so you know, and people really live by and they worship, and every saint has a, its own color and its own day of the week and and its own you know uh, character and stories. Um, and an element that's that's attached to it. So yeah, it's it's incredibly rich. Yes. Well, if you think that sounds interesting, you'll be fascinated at the way that gets woven through the story, because your your book has this cast of characters that you identify with, but there are also historical characters, and there are also all these gods and goddesses, and they. There's this panoply, and it gives you the slight sense throughout the book of lushness and sensuality and otherworldliness. So even though it's a very realistic novel, it's not um, speculative fiction in any way at all, I still had this slight sense the whole time that I was on the edge of this particularly rich fantasy. So you'll see that when you read it, and you'll enjoy that as well. Um, and then, of course, the way she, you know, sort of you've now raised something that I maybe should have made clearer right at the beginning, that... It's a quest novel. It is so many things, but it is also a quest. And the thing that drives the plot initially is that Maddie is working at a seed bank in Kirstenbosch, and they discover that the last, that the final seeds, are the, the, the only remaining seeds of a rare tree, are no longer viable, and the species is now extinct. 
and we were just talking at breakfast this morning about how in many ways this book is about loss and multiple levels of loss and how you cope with loss. And I said to Jackie, if we stopped and thought about loss on an environmental scale, which is one of the things that's very delicately and deftly woven right throughout this book, we would be in such a state of grief we would not be able to get out of bed in the morning. What did you say to me? 50% of... Um, species in our lifetime. In the last 40 years, yeah, that's the WWF lost. statistic. We've lost 50% of our wildlife in the last 40 years. Yeah. And this book is about how they've worked out that because of the slave tradition, the, um, the head of uh, the seed bank, Maddie's boss, has this hunch that somewhere in northeast Brazil, there will be trees, but they will be protected because they will be integral to the part of this religion, and they will in any case be rare. Um, so she is literally sent in a mission back on time, and that's what drives the plot. She goes unwillingly, um, she's more or less bribed and blackmailed and bullied into f making this transatlantic trip. And also it's legally dodgy, you know, you're not allowed to to, to, to carry seeds and plants of plant material across international borders, as you know, you know anybody who's travelled internationally knows that. So that's the driver of the plot, um, that, and that's why Maddie has to penetrate into this religious community. She has to um, she has to make friends with a gardener. I think at this point you should tell us a little bit about the. The relationship and the relationship of secrets. Yes, he's so much more than a gardener. Um, <laughs> I said gardener in my he's, most he's, sort of loaded voice. Did, yes. <laughs> um, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> um, yes, well, well um, just uh, I want to just pick up on what you were saying about the speculative fiction. I mean, there, there's, there's quite a lot... Um, uh, seed banking um, is a real thing. I mean, sometimes you know, truth is stranger than fiction, and there and and the way that seeds these days are preserved, uh, cryogenetically and frozen in seed banks around the world, is is absolutely fascinating and, and quite miraculous. Um, and we actually have a a, um, a branch of the Millennium Seed Bank here at Kirstenbosch. Um, this is I made that the sitting for Maddie. And um, and you know, in fact. I couldn't, you know, you couldn't make this up. I mean, it really is extraordinary what they what they what they do, um, and uh, the the main branch is up in Kew um, in in England, and I actually went to the seed bank there, and it, it is like science fiction. It's extraordinary, um, and their aim is to to preserve. Uh, when I was writing the book, they were trying to have 10% of the world's wild seeds preserved. Um, you know, frozen cryogenetically for future use because the habitats are disappearing at such an alarming rate. Um, and through climate change, you know, a lot of plants are also threatened. Um, and I believe at the moment, so they, they, made, they made their target of 10% by 2010, and um, they're now aiming for 25%. Um, so it's an ongoing, it's an incredible uh, endeavor. Um, so Maddie is part of this world, and as I said, she, she is a scientist, but, um, but she, has to go, uh, she has to go into a completely other world. Well, she calls herself. She says it's a Matahari sort of mission, um, and because she because she speaks Portuguese, because she was born in Brazil, and she has the connections there, they figure she's the right person for the job. But there, there, and she doesn't know that there's dodgy things afoot. But but the reason that that there is such a, a search for this particular tree that's now extinct in West Africa is that it has potential uh, cancer uh, curing or you know uh, treatment potential. So. 
Um, so there's a big farmer would also be after it as well. So there's a lot of people who are interested in this in this in this seed in this tree. Um, however, she believes she's just there for the plant itself. She's not there for any other motives. She believes in protecting plants because they deserve to be protected. Um, they they're valuable in their own in their own right. Um, yeah. So she the, the person who will help her. So to getting to to Hero. Um, as I said, has, has uh, preserves a lot of the traditions and so on, and they also they use a lot of herbalism. They use a lot of um, of, of, of leaves, and there is actually um, a position in each tejero that's called the hand of the herbs, and this is the person who cultivates the plants that will be used in ceremonies and will be used, um, um, you know, also when when you're initiated into into candomblé, you 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 also have a herb. I mean, every every orisha. Or God or Goddess has its own herb as well, um, and so you, there's various rituals that you do, cleansing rituals, and you drink them, and you have to wash yourself with the herbs, and 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 so on. So, so they're very important to the life of a of a tejero, and um, and the person in this instance who is the hand of the herbs is is a man called uh, José, José, come in José, and she he's the person who's going to show her the garden, and she thinks she'll just stumble in there, and you know, and and hopefully the tree will be there, and out she'll go. But then, but she realizes, I mean, he's. He also has a lot of secrets. I mean, she has secrets in that she's not completely upfront with what she's doing there, um, and she's keeping secrets from herself. But he's also not completely upfront with her as as they as they get involved. That's the big love story um, of the book, um, and neither of them, in, you know, expects or intends to. They're, they're both quite antagonistic in the beginning, but um, but they do have a, a, quite a grand passion. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the one of the you know when I, when I said gardener, I mean. What I suppose I didn't want to give away until you had answered the question is that he's actually almost a high priest. Um, you know, there is there's something sacred about his, well, as you've explained, there's something sacred about his role as the caretaker and the curator. It's kind of like the Garden of Eden myth, but sort of put on its head. You know, instead of man you use that word advisedly, having dominion over all the earth, this is very much a servant role. And, um, and it involves real physical labor. Do you think this would be a good uh, time to read that passage? Okay, There's a be- I, I just want to introduce you to a sense, for those of you who haven't read the book yet, of the way Jackie writes. And just the sensuousness and the warmth and the elegance of her prose. So I picked this passage, she didn't. And it's an introduction to, it's, it's, an, it's a Garden of Eden story that's an anti-Garden of Eden story. So see how it goes. I haven't read this one before. So um, there's also, I, I must just say, there's, a, there's a, a passage of poetry by Elizabeth Bishop in, in the middle of this. Um, you can, yeah, we'll get to that. But uh, if, I, if I start reading in a strange different voice, you know why, because it's, it's not Maddie's. Um, Three steps later, and I was in another world. The garden's perimeter was held by a few buttressed ficus trees with wide white ribbons tied around their trunks. I walked on and down through towering Bahian myrtles and fat-fruited jaca trees, originally from the Far East, now so common in Brazil they're practically a national institution. I passed white jacarandas and trees heavy with cacao fruit, mangoes and avocados mingled with Atlantic rainforest trees that I didn't recognize. Bahia's rainforests are floristically unique and spectacularly diverse. Half the plants here grow nowhere else, and the other half have roots in Africa. About 80% of them host ephemeral epithytes. Here at last was Bishop's first idealization, her leafy tapestry. Monster ferns in silver-gray relief, and flowers too, like giant water lilies, up in the air, up, rather, in the leaves, 
Purple, yellow, two yellows, pink, rust red and greenish white. Solid but airy, fresh as if just finished and taken off the frame. That was Elizabeth Bishop, not me. I tilted my head back and looked up into the canopy. Breathing into the ozone, I let myself get dizzy with green. The slope made it difficult to sense how far I'd gone by the time the terrain eventually flattened out and the trees began to thin to let in light. There was no obvious order here. Herbs and grasses grew together haphazardly, but I began to make out rough beds bordered by striated bamboo, tendrils of bottle gourd snaked among castor beans, and around tall sprays of mist grey artemisia, the old world witch's favourite. A morning glory type of flower curled around the trunks of ju juvenile kola nut trees. Flat tobacco leaves vied for space with spreading plectranthus and the jasmine-like helicum cornarium, which I knew well from its home continent, but I note, saw no signs of Nibaldia mundi or of the mysterious hand of the herbs. I could hear him, though, or at least the rhythmic thwack of his blade. The sound drew me forward into a clearing. He was standing with his back to me, hacking at a tall strand of speared brachts. I suppose I had expected some priestly vision in white, but there was nothing special about him. His pale shorts were an indiscriminate color. His sweat-marked vest had once been white, but had faded to an overwashed gray. His feet splayed sideways out of plastic flip-flops as he anchored himself for each swing of the blade. I didn't call out. I just stayed on the edge of the clearing. I told myself I was savoring the moment before he knew I was there, before my work had to start in earnest. But in truth, I was enjoying the way each swing rippled through his shoulder muscles. Then his blade snagged on a thick stem, and in the turn of his body as he tugged it free, he registered my presence. He turned to face me, and I recognized him, the man from the drum pit of the Horda last night. Thank you. It's a lovely passage. Um, another of those strange little quirks is that um, when Faree asked me to do this novel, what he didn't know is that I'm a botanist's daughter. And in fact, my dad used to run the herbarium, uh, the, the herbarium in the botanical garden around the corner. So life is just full of coincidences that if you wrote them into a book, not even Jackie could make it look plausible. But um, it gives you a sense, this, this passage gives you a sense of how many different elements are woven together. And I want us to get onto the poetry now, um, because as I mentioned earlier that one of, this book does many things. Um, it's a book about the environment, it's a book about slavery, it manages to address, it, it's, it's a book about um, alternative, I want to say gentler, but certainly more matriarchal, um, narratives of spirituality. You know that that, that they are that, that 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 one can go into this realm and access different models of being spiritual, of being religious, of um, practicing um, as some sort of transcendental. Uh, I, 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 the word religion to me is a cold one. I, I'm looking for a I'm looking for a better word, but it's about all of those things. Um, and it's about restitution, and it is about homecoming, and there are some very interesting, the way she wraps it up, you'll see, is very interesting. But it is also about how one negotiates and deals with loss. And um, the, the, it's also very much features the work of the American poet Elizabeth Bishop, who spent much of her adult life in Brazil. And 
we had this wonderful experience because when I first had a manuscript that was studded with poetry, as someone who's worked in publishing, my first thought is, uh-oh, copyright fees. I hadn't thought of that at the time, of course. Yeah. And of course, it's the, you know, I looked at this and I thought, this is going to cost a fortune. Because of course, copyright fees are usually paid in hard currencies. You know, so when you're told, yes, of course you can have a line from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, but each line costs 10 pounds. You know, you, you have to go and lie somewhere in a darkened room for a while to think about that. But the wonderful thing about this book was that Jackie wrote off for permission, and we got permission to use all of the Elizabeth Bishop for free, which is wonderful. But there is a particular poem by Bishop that to me echoes right through this book, but it's never actually cited in full. But I want you to read that poem for us now. I will probably cry. <laughs> I always do. But it's, to me, it, it's, it's, it's a lovely in example of intertextuality. And if you haven't read this book yet, or if you have, but you're not an Elizabeth Bishop fan, go and read Elizabeth Bishop, mm. because it will, it will add there. to your pleasure and enjoyment, not just of life in general, but this book as well. I do, I do think the Odishas are, are looking over us here because I, I, we didn't discuss reading this poem before and for some reason I brought my Elizabeth Bishop book with me um, when I came through last night. And so when Helen said to me, you must read this poem, and I haven't read it. Um, yeah. In fact, the last time I read this was at Stephen Watson's Oh God, memorial. now I will and, cry. <laughs> yeah, um, this, I, I just have to, to mention Stephen because he, um, he brought me to Elizabeth Bishop actually um, when, I was, when I was doing my, my MA in creative writing at UCT, we had a poetry group um, and I was privileged enough, um, and this was, this was two years before he died, um, to spend time in a poetry group with Stephen Watson who was, it was just a, a vast talent and, um, and generous, such a generous tutor and, yeah, and person. And, um, and we, had, we used to have a, a funny, you know, so we, we, we came to Elizabeth Bishop, I was in the middle of writing this book, or in the early stages, and, um, and I, I just fell in love with her, and then he used to sort of tease me, and he used to say, you know, uh, he, he'd be very pro provocative, and he'd throw, and he'd say, well, Elizabeth Bishop, I don't know, is she really that good? You know, and then one would have to defend her, and then, you know, and I, I think, well, I think her writing is extraordinary, um, and I think uh, Ms. Stevens said it was my corrupted American ear, that's, that's why I could, that's why I got her when other people didn't, I mean, I don't understand how anybody can't, and I don't believe that Stephen didn't either, but he, he claims not to, but she is the most extraordinary poet, um, she is, um, and she's a sort of a talisman for Maddie, Maddie, Maddie has an aunt uh, who lives in New York, which um, is one of the three places in the novel, and, and her aunt, uh, she's a literary, uh, she's an editor at a magazine, uh, I think it's the New Yorker in my mind, I never mention it, but, um, you know, who's, who's very literary and, and who, uh, who brought Maddie to Elizabeth Bishop, and so Elizabeth, uh, Maddie takes this book around with her, um, as, as I have today, actually, and um, this I have a line of this poem uh, in, the, in the epigraph, actually, but um, it's, it doesn't appear anywhere uh, in the story, but it's actually, it, it pretty much sums up, I think, the, the mood of the story. Uh, the poem is called One Art. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent, the art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these things will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. 
I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. Elizabeth Bishop. <laughs> Well, it's almost quite hard to go on from there. <laughs> Not least that I didn't bring a tissue. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm a complete sucker for poetry. You know, you know, as you can see, it makes me cry in, front of, in public in front of strangers. But it is a favorite poem. And, um, of course, when I, when, I, when I read the epigraph, you know, it's one of my favorite poems. I was like, ooh. You know, you know that moment of excitement when you read the epigraph of a book? And it's a quote from a writer you love, mm. and you think, oh, the author and I are already literally on the same page. Mm. And I, when I got the manuscript, and I looked at it, and I realized, and it started with this line, the, the epigraph from one of my favorite poems, I remember thinking, oh boy, this is going to be fun. But it also brings in an element that we haven't even mentioned, just because there is so much to talk about, and there are so many ingredients, ingredients is the wrong word, but there are, so many, there are so many threads, I think is a better one, and one of them is the fact that this waif of the oceans, you know, Maddie who has these complex, disrupted familial relationships, um, has that saving grace, the, uh, the strong, feisty, independent so-called spinster aunt, who actually is her, um, her go-to place and who gives her a, you know, a moral compass for her life. And Maddie's morals are interesting. You know, she, she, she is not, somebody said somewhere that uh, boring characters, no, good characters are boring to read. And let me, let, me, let me put it this way, Maddie is not a boring character. So I'll leave you to find out what her flaws are. But nonetheless, she has this Aunt M who gives her this moral compass. And the, the moral compass seems to come from the poetry of Elizabeth Bishop. That's really just me extemporizing. Um, it's not a question unless you, want to, unless you want to add to that or talk a little bit more about Aunt M. Yeah, or, or about Elizabeth. I think, I, think the, um, I think her Aunt M, who is like the aunt I wish I had. I think the aunt everybody wishes they had. She's, she's just fabulous. Um, and and, and she, she gives Maddie this book because I think she, she recognizes that, that Maddie is a little bit of a, of a... I love this waif, this word waif that you're using. And, and you know, that, that she's a little bit... Un, maybe unhinged is another way of putting it. Untethered. Um, and, uh, and so she... And she recognizes that... So, so because Maddie has suffered a, a devastating loss uh, early, early on, the loss of her mother. Um, so she's a motherless child, which is also why this, this search for, and it's also why Candomblé mm. takes her and grabs her the way that it does, uh, because she desperately is looking for, for mother and mothering. And, and Aunt M is a kind of a mother to her, but she's, she's at a distance, um, you know, in, in many ways, not just in terms of where she lives. 
Um, so, but Elizabeth Bishop uh, was also orphaned, very young, and she also she lived in Brazil for, for many years. Um, so she writes about Brazil um, in a way, you know, as, as an, the outsider, insider also, and she has that experience. And she's she's she just she writes about loneliness, as as, as that poem shows, and and loss in a way that that. Um, that nobody else does, and and for Maddie, Maddie just gets gets her. So yeah, that's why I made her the the sort of Maddie's talisman. And and yeah, we were so fortunate because there's quite a few snippets of of the poem. I mean, not that much, but um, you know, whenever whenever um, uh, Maddie comes across a scene, she'll she'll think about how Elizabeth would have would have uh, depicted, or sometimes there'll be a line that Elizabeth wrote about that exact same thing. So we were very fortunate that we. We got away with that. They were very generous in allowing us to use all of it. Maybe because more people need to come to Elizabeth Bishop. Well, I sincerely hope so. I mean, it is lovely when you read... Um, when you have that experience of reading a novel that is a riff on poetry. You know, it doesn't often happen. And it's a very, very happy marriage in this particular case. And it works very well with many of the other themes of the book, that there are these gods and goddesses, and they, have the, they all have stories and habits and quirks, and their stories are woven through. That they are slaves from, from, from generations back whose stories pop up. Um, there are... Oh, I know what I want you to talk about, because to me it was, in fact, if you can even find the passage, it would be wonderful, but um, the, the stories on the carvings. Oh. You know what I'm talking yes, about, yes. yes the Explain you, to them. Well, do you want me to read it, or do you yeah, want me well, to... Well, 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 well whichever, you, whichever you prefer. I don't want to make you sort of now scrabble yeah, anxiously yeah, well, maybe just, through uh, your novel. But. She, so she goes to... Um, she, she needs to, when she gets to Brazil, she realizes she needs to find out, you know, she sort of gaily saunters into this uh, Tejero and thinks that, that it'll be easy, and then she realizes she's in way over her head. Um, so she goes on a little mission to the Afro-Brazilian Museum to find out about the Orishas, and they are all displayed there in cases, and they, um, and it really is like this. I mean, I don't know if you remember those sort of Spanish dolls that, that everybody used to have when they were kids at one stage, you know, with the, with the sort of the the dress and the so so if you go into these museums there are or the orishas all have their sort of life life like sort of figurines dressed up in the in you know the garb and so on and they and they're so she's doing her research and she um you know she reads terms about them and finds out and this is but all then, stuff that you've done this is all stuff that i did yeah yeah i know the research it's not it's, it took five years for a good reason but i was having fun um but as she's about to leave now and there's also uh, well, we can talk about Caribe, but there is a there is a uh, an artist called Caribe from Salvador. There's actually three. There's other people also that are that are part of the story because the Donna Flora and her two husbands. You know, there are other. But let's not go there. But Caribe is a is a sculptor uh, and artist who uh, who did a lot of depictions um, of of the Orishas. And I didn't know about this place either. But I also went to the Afro Brazilian Spiritual Museum, and. As I was leaving, I walked into this cathedral of a place, which, um, and floor to ceiling carved, literally, we're, we're, this, this is a very good space to describe it, that high, um, carved out of wood, 12 orishas on either side. I mean, and they were absolutely exquisite. Um, and I do describe it in the book, but uh, so she spends a lot of time, you know, sitting there looking at these, and, and it's a wonderful way to bring them to life because all aspects of them, you know, they've got this, so you've got, uh, uh, 
Oshun with his with with waves, and you've got Yamanja with all her children coming out of it, and you've got uh, Oshosi with his leaves, and uh, Shango, who's the Shango is also a, a big part of the story. Shango is the god of lightning and um, and uh, and justice, interestingly, um, and he has his axe, and so they're all carved, uh, but beautifully and 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 delicately, but they're uh, they're massive, yeah, they're they're beautiful big sculptures. Yeah. Well, for me, it was once again that you had brought another art form mm. into an art form. And it worked so beautifully because Maddie is going in search of extinct trees. And she walks into this cathedral and she literally, well, there's this art museum, and then she walks into a place that, I mean, not only is the book suffused with poetry, but it's, and it's suffused with these gods and goddesses. This is the, your, your word, which I, I won't say simply because I don't pronounce Orishas. it correctly. Yes, yeah. Orishas. Yes, Orishas. Um, not only is it suffused with these spiritual beings that have narrative existence, whether or not you believe in them is irrelevant. They have stories. Um, they exist as... I want to say fiction that is realer than, mm. than reality. And then you walk into this place that's literally a cathedral of art, and what struck me about that passage, maybe I'm misremembering it, is that they're all carved out of wood. Yes, yeah, did I not say and that? Yeah, it's... I thought, but she's going in search of these yeah. trees, and there are these trees come to life telling stories, mm. and this is all in a, this is in a book that's a whole nest you know, Russian dolls of stories within stories within stories. It was such a satisfying moment oh, for me good. reading it. And I can tell you about it because it's not integral to the plot, so it's not yeah. a spoiler, but it's something for you rather to anticipate. I think that's the moment for her where she, where she really gets the Odisha because she gets it through the tree. You know, she realizes that these were once huge trees and she, she, she really feels, she feels a connection there. Uh, for the first time because of what she does, which is interesting. I hadn't really thought about that before, but it is the first time that she gets them. Yes. And then on it goes. No, uh, funnily enough, just, uh, and I mean, this is an aside, last year I went to Vancouver Island, a long story, but I was, I was taken by a Canadian writer into a tr what they call a cool rainforest. Um, that was a virgin redwood rainforest. It had never been touched. It had somehow been spared. Now, I've been into some beautiful cathedrals in my life, uh, human-made cathedrals, and I walked into this forest along this boardwalk that they've made, that they've carefully constructed so that you don't ever walk on the forest itself. And I had that exact same sense of I had just walked into a cathedral and there was this extraordinary sense of the numinous of, of, of spiritual awe. It would have flattened you if you were the hard, most hardened atheist in the world. So, and I thought of your book. So, enjoy the rest of the festival. <laughs> <laughs>